None of these works, I know. There we go. Well, good evening, everyone. We're still getting some technology hooked up here, but in the meantime, enjoy the beautiful view of the lake. Hey, how are you? Well, welcome back tonight. We're still working our way through some, uh, some of our studies here. And um, sure enough, I walked in here and forgot something, but that's okay. I don't need that bad. Uh, but uh, good to see everyone. Hope you've had a great day and a good week. It's a beautiful afternoon. For a few hours there, it felt nice. Anyway, then the sun started setting and got cool again. But uh, we're glad you're here this evening. And uh, a great day here at church. Great service this morning. And uh, looking forward to a good week ahead. Don't look now, but we're halfway through January. So uh, it's, gonna, uh, it's all downhill to get through this month from here, for sure. And uh, tonight we're going to continue. Our conversation last week was... Uh, really about some of the discussions that set the stage for what we'll, who we'll talk about tonight called the Radical Reformers. And uh, the big issue, of course, with them is baptism. And uh, we'll touch base with that uh, again as we get started tonight for sure. And um, so uh, tonight our, we're going to talk about groups I know you've heard of and maybe had some contact with, um, the Mennonites, the Amish, the Brethren churches, and the Hutterites. Of those four, I would guess the Hutterites are probably the one group you may have not had any connection with because they are typically not in this part of the country. So I'll introduce them quickly. And if you want to go find a Hutterite, I'll, I'll be glad to tell you where you can find one. But uh, we'll talk about those four groups and how they sort of stem off and, and a little bit of their history without going into great, you know, great detail. Our time is somewhat limited, but um, opportunity to look at them tonight. Uh, let's see, looking ahead next week, while I'm thinking about it, we, next week we'll do, we're going to do Methodist and Wesleyans, and um, uh, some, some discussion about the Methodists of lately. They've been in the news a little bit. We'll talk about that, too, with their history, but uh, we'll look at the Methodist denominations and, uh, and where they originated from, and the Wesleyans uh, really are their, are their um, uh, is an offshoot of the Methodist, and we'll talk about that connection, too. So that'll be next week. So we've got several groups to go as we work our way um, into the new year ahead and, and uh, some, some lessons as we, as we ultimately work our way toward Baptist history. And uh, I want to spend probably four weeks on Baptist history um, and uh, a little bit of, um, of our understanding for that I think is always good for sure. Well, let's pray and then uh, we'll get started this evening. Father, thank you for our day. We've indeed had a wonderful day to... Um, uh, to honor you and bless you with. I thank you for the great service this morning, for the encouragement that was from Brother Nick. I pray that you'll um, bless our time now as we gather together in our study, reminding us of generations past and, and different uh, denominations. And I pray that you'll uh, allow us to, to be appreciative of the truth of what we, what we hold dearly as the, true of, the truth of God's Word and uh, the teaching that comes from it. And I pray that you'll allow us uh, to have a profitable time for that. I pray that you'll bless the other groups that are meeting around our church this evening, from the youngest to the oldest. I pray that you'll bless all the children and teen groups, and that you'll be honored through them. And our time tonight, uh, though will be brief, will be profitable. And I pray that you'll bless the week ahead as uh, we look forward to great things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We mentioned last week the issue of baptism. Now, most, for most of us, right, if you've, if you've spent your life... Um, uh, 
in Baptist circles, you know, baptism's never really been a big issue. You profess faith in Christ, uh, you're baptized. And we're very comfortable with that. But if you turn back the clock about 500 years, that was really radical teaching. Because the Catholic Church had always taught that a child should be baptized. And, the, and, and even beyond that, baptism was essential to be saved. If you were going to be saved, it had to happen in the equation where part of it was baptism. And that's one of the reasons why the Catholic Church, uh, during the Middle Ages particularly, when so many children died, right? There's such a, a time of disease and not much medical aid or knowledge. And so for parents to give them some comfort, they would say, baptize your child, and then if something should happen, you know that they're saved. Well, that teaching of infant baptism from that perspective was changed with the Reformers. The Reformers did not tie baptism to salvation. They did separate those two. But many of the Reformers maintained infant baptism. They re repurposed it, if you will, they kept infant baptism. So still today, the Presbyterian Church, the Episcopal Church, the Church of England, the Lutheran Church, and various other Reformed churches, including some Baptist churches, will do infant baptism. Now, the Baptist churches do it kind of as a, it's up to the parents if you want to do it. The other churches will certainly encourage it for their Christian families. And it's, so it's, it's sort of taken a, you know, it's, it takes a very different view when you get into those denominations. The three big issues always with denominations, I mean with baptism rather between the denominations, is who gets baptized? Is it an infant who is being brought to be baptized by their parents as a sign of the covenant of being a Christ follower? That's kind of the, without going real deep, that's kind of the intent. Of the, you know, the parents come and say, we are Christian parents. And we are baptizing this child that it may receive and be part of the new covenant of Christ in that sense. So the first issue is who gets baptized? Of course, that's foreign to us as, as Baptists. We believe that baptism should be done as a public display of a person's profession of faith, confession of their sins, acceptance of Christ, profession of faith. And it's strictly symbolic but it's to be done after a person has reached um, an age of accountability, whatever you want to make that to be, and we will baptize a person there. Now, again, defining a person is a little bit of an issue with some churches. Our church policy is we, a child makes a profession of faith. We'll baptize them if there's a sense of real genuine understanding so that the pastor um, uh, or a parent or a Bible study teacher or a children's worker may take that child and, and really make sure they understand it well. And, uh, you know, as well as they can and understand it's what they're doing and their profession of faith and in the baptism. And probably many of you here, you know, I've asked the question before, how many of you were saved and baptized as a child? Um, I'm very thankful for a pastor who, when I was nine years old, professed faith in Christ, uh, but was interviewed, if you want to use the term, and, and, and helped by a pastor who helped me understand it, and then shortly after was baptized. So the issue of who gets baptized is still a pretty big issue. 
Second question is, when do they get baptized? And that is the idea of before, a public, before they make a profession or, or after. Or as I mentioned last week, there's been a bit of a movement in American uh, church horizon or landscape of churches wanting to do instantaneous baptisms where they take and baptize you at the end of the service. I mean, you came to church and you, you heard the gospel, you received Christ, and you made, the, you made a, a, an acknowledgement to the pastor, and they, and they will call people up from the congregation, you know, and baptize you right there. Uh, I'd like to think that movement's dying down because I don't think that's terribly, terribly um, effective and in the, in the best way to make people understand the importance of baptism. But again, there's been a bit of a movement that, that's found its way in the last 20 years or so in the American church landscape. Um, so issues of when become part of that discussion too. And of course the issue of how. As I mentioned, you know, there's, there's, three, there's more than one way to baptize somebody, depending on who you talk to. Some people, if you're going to baptize a child, you do it by pouring uh, water over their, the, the forehead. Uh, in some cases, you would sprinkle in some cases, uh, of course, as we would follow the practice of full immersion, uh, taking it from the word baptism in Greek really means to put under or to submerge. The style of baptism that we follow, probably the one most of us have seen, certainly seen it here, is the style of baptism where the person stands. So if I'm doing the baptizing, the person stands here, right, and they're laid back and brought up this way. That's pretty, pretty common. Um, there, again, depending on sort of the culture and where you're at, if you go to some places in South Asia, they will baptize standing face to face, which, you know, again, the idea is there's completely going under. Part of the reason for that is it's really culturally unacceptable for a man to put his hands on a woman who's not his wife. So to take a woman behind her back or to hold her by the hand here and lay her down is culturally unacceptable. So a person in that situation, especially a female, may simply just go under the water, bend at their knees, go under the water and come back up. It's, you know, the form, I, I think, a lot of room for variety there. Um, in some places, they will actually sit you down. You'll sit down in a tub or something because there's not enough... There's not enough water to stand you up in, and you'll sit down and, and, and sort of from the waist back go under the water. So, you know, to me, those are all very doable, negotiated, easy-to-understand ways of doing baptism, full immersion, just different varieties, different forms. So, but the baptism issue 500 years ago was a huge issue, and it was enough to get you killed if you were to get you executed by the, by the government, and I mentioned last week some of these men uh, here, uh, Conrad Grable on the left there. This group were the radical reformers. They're called radical because they took the, the separation of doctrine from the Catholic Church and went a little further with it. So our two big names, three big names, I mean, if you say it, would be Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin. Those are all considered the sort of the fathers of the Reformation. As they begin to gather and teach people, 
Some people saw when they read a Bible, hey, what you're teaching's good, but it's not going far enough. We need to go further. Again, all of those, all of those men had no problem with infant baptism. So the first marker of the radical reformers was they believed in what the term we used last week introduced to you, credo baptism. You're baptized after you make a, a profession of faith. These men took that position, that baptism should be by someone who consciously acknowledges their sin, repents of their sin, accepts the gift of salvation by putting their faith in Christ, all done through the grace of God. Now, again, we feel all very comfortable with that today. But if you turn the clock back 500 years, and any of us walked out in the street and said that, we'd likely be arrested and we could very well be executed, as some of these men were, or shunned or turned away. Um, Franz Mantz, the man on the left there at the bottom, second picture there, was drowned by the local authority, had him arrested because he was teaching confessional baptism. You're baptized after you make a confession of faith. He was arrested by the local authorities, found guilty of teaching heresy, taken out in a boat, tied up, and dumped overboard. Pretty much with the intent of saying, you want to be baptized? We'll baptize you. You know, that was kind of their mindset in doing that. To set a pattern that you don't, you don't change what, what we think is the right thing to do. So these men, uh, the left three are Swiss, uh, Grable, Mance and, and Blue Rock, or Blau Rock, sort of depends on how you want to pronounce a couple of letters there, uh, were all of the Swiss mindset of that. And they, particularly Conrad Grable, the man on the left, was the founder of a group of Christians who became known, and are still known today in history, and we see that denominational line, and I'll bring it up later, called the Swiss Brethren. They were distinguished from the Reformers because they took a different stance in baptism. The two men on the right, uh, Hubmeyer, uh, there was, um, uh, was one of the ones from Germany. Uh, he, he was executed in Vienna for his stance on adult or confessional baptism, we'd say. So there's, there's an interesting trail of this. You have the reformers coming out of Germany and Switzerland. You also have the radical reformers following them out of Germany and Switzerland. And, that, and because of their stands, doctrinally, they were, they were the enemies of the reformers and they were the enemies of the Catholics. They had no refuge. And that's why some of these men, when you read their stories, they literally spent their time just kind of hiding and going from place to place to seek refuge. Some were caught and arrested and executed and others were not. I'll introduce you to one that was not here in a minute. So this is a group called the Anabaptist. Now, a couple of important distinctions. The Anabaptists are not the group that became the Baptist. Right? So they are not our spiritual heritage. We'll see later how they fit into the story of the Baptist, but they themselves do not become the Baptist. So here's some of their teachings. Some of which we go, okay, I agree with that, and others we'd say, no, I, you know, I don't find any, any uh, conviction in that statement. 
Infant baptism was not scriptural. We'd probably agree with that. They, they believed with the reformers, particularly Zwingli, that communion was a symbol or a memorial or a model emphasizing submission to God and a willingness to suffer for your faith, even death. Martyrdom was, was understood by the Anabaptists as their likely end to this life. Many of them, and indeed were, many of them were, um, uh, were persecuted for their faith. And who were they persecuted by? Other Christians, other reformer, the reformers. They were persecuted by the Catholics. They were outlaws to the state because all these Catholic countries, they didn't have any place for the Anabaptists in their country either. So they understood their willingness to suffer and die for their faith, and many of them did. In many of their teachings, you will find them put up what historians will call and theologians will say an overemphasis of the New Testament. So they did not teach the Old Testament as much. They really emphasized on New Testament. And that's a, you know, that's, certainly an opposition I would take. I, I, I think we'd all agree uh, all of God's Word has a place and a purpose in its study and understanding. They taught that tithing, because it was an Old Testament command, was not necessary for Christians. Christians were to give voluntarily, and that beyond that, all Christians should share in common the things that we have. What were they looking at? The model of those Christians in Acts chapter 2, where it says they shared all things in common. Okay, so they're looking at building kind of a close-knit community where they share their resources. Everyone helps everyone. That was their Christian mindset. They believe that Christians should not participate in war. Of course, the teaching we now know is pacifism. Um, and so they did not. They would not mount armies. Again, they, they said, you know, it's not of Christ. Um, it's not the act of Christ who said, put away the sword to Peter. He who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. They took that idea and made it into a teaching that, that they should not participate in war or even to the point of defending themselves. They just believed that persecution was, was part of it. They believed that as a Christian, you did not participate in government. You do not swear an oath. Again, there's scriptural references for these. If you just sort of pluck that one verse out, and that's all you live by. You don't read it in context or understand it in light of other scriptures. They believe you should not swear an oath even in court. They believed in community living uh, that was separate from the world. So this is the group, again, who are we thinking about as we're moving toward this, down this path? The Amish, right? Communities by themselves, isolated from the rest of the world. That, that was part of their start in the 1500s, 1520s. Uh, church should be pure. No outsiders were allowed to come into the congregation for worship unless you had been identified as a rightly confessed and a rightly baptized Christian. You just couldn't come in. That worship, the worship experience of community of a church was unique for that, for that group. That was the only group it was for. That's, you know, very different than what we would think for sure. Um, the Schleitheim Confession in 1527 addressed seven principles that, uh, if you read that, I read it again this week, it's not a terribly long document, uh, basically just says, here's the seven things that, that we believe. It's, a, it's an early confession uh, of, of their basic teachings about baptism and about the church, things that we've talked about here in this list. Make the Schleitheim Confession. And that's kind of the cornerstone of, of these groups as they start over as 
you turn the page of time and you go to the next couple of centuries, um, the Sleitheim Confession is kind of the cornerstone of all the doctrines that will eventually grow out to become these other groups. Now, it's with all that in mind, and, and we're in the 1520s here. And with all that in mind, that we start to talk about particularly some of the groups and people who become more distinct. Uh, this is the, the man who really becomes the leading voice for the Anabaptists, Menno Simons, right? So here's the man where you get the name Mennonites from. Menno Simons was uh, ordained a Roman Catholic priest in uh, 1524 and within a few years began himself to turn away from the Catholic teaching to a more reformed mindset. By 1536, another decade, another dozen years later, uh, he had completely left any Catholic teachings. We don't have record of his baptism or confession of faith, but they must have happened um, because he takes a very strong position. Uh, he believed that the Catholic teaching of infant baptism was wrong and the Catholic teaching of the Mass, uh, transubstantiation, the idea that the, the, the elements of the of the communion become the actual body and blood of Christ. He believed those were wrong, as other reformers had. But he became an Anabaptist because, again, the issue of baptism. Whereas the other reformers were still practicing infant baptism, he saw that that was not scriptural in his view of it. He also led a pacifist movement. He began to teach this as a way of lifestyle for the Anabaptist. Part of the history behind that is the fact that he had had a brother who was killed by another, well, by another, by one of the other Christian groups, Catholics or Reformers somewhere, I forgot the details, but he had a brother who was killed. And his position became, why are, why are people under, in the name of Christ killing other people in the name of Christ, right? I mean, there is no logic to that you can understand. And so he began to teach that no, we, no one should be killing anyone in the name of Christ. So it became the movement of what we call pacifism. His book, the most influential book of the Anabaptists in the time frame, is the book of fundamentals. Notice in the picture here he's holding a book that's not a Bible, that's his book of fundamentals. Because that's what, that's what he's remembered for. Again, he took the, the Sleitheim Confession of 1527 and sort of updated it and expanded it. Um, and it's from him that a group who rallied to, to his teaching and to his preaching uh, became known as the Mennonites. Um, and so that name still rings today in our vocabulary, right? There's Mennonites living in this community um, and uh, in this area. And so um, that's a group but unlike, now think for a moment too, can compare the Mennonites to the Amish. You typically don't see the Mennonites be quite so communal. They're not living in a segmented area together supporting each other. So they're a little more willing to be engaged and involved with the world around them, but still hanging on to these doctrines and the things that they're teaching. Again, the Mennonites uh, grow out of that radicals of the Swiss and German Reformation, their origin is in Switzerland and Netherlands. Um, Menno Simons from the Netherlands. 
Um, they taught a pure and simple and pure faith. I mean, they're, one, of the, one of the mindsets that crawls into the discussion and eventually becomes very predominant, we're going to see it even in the Baptist history, is this idea of going back to a New Testament church. And again, it's hard for us to appreciate the background of all of these groups, the Reformers and the Anabaptists and so on, because all they had ever known was growing up in a Catholic culture. Church to them was a place you went and heard a priest, a priest speak in Latin and perform a Latin mass. And they, it was just such a disconnect with the people. I am willing, at least, to give some leeway to their intent to try and say Christianity should be more of the Bible, less political. You don't get involved with the government. That was their, you know, we can understand. They kind of swung the pendulum way the other way on some things. But at least their intent was to try and build a pure church based upon biblical principles. And most of them went to the book of Acts because that's where the church starts. And they, they pulled out of those texts certain teachings and doctrines that they really clung to. And, you know, in many cases have held on to, here we are hundreds of years later, for sure. And the Mennonites, again, will exercise a level of pacifism. Now, this group carried on for, in Europe, and began to spread. Menno Simons, by the way, was one of the few Anabaptist leaders who was not executed for his faith. Um, he, lived, uh, he lived out his life. Now, he was on the run most of his life. You know, he's, he's on the most wanted list, but he was able to live out his life. And so he's, he's an interesting, um, again, an interesting man, I think, and, and uh, during an interesting time to step up and proclaim biblical truth, not church doctrine of the Catholics. So, um, you know, the Mennonites, again, have that background. Now, that, the Mennonites as a group, eventually, because of the time frame it is, it's becoming the, you know, the, we sort of turned the pages of the 1500s. Uh, we go from Menno Simons in the middle 1500s. And, of course, during that time, Europe is, is, is exploding with um, exploration, right? Countries are sending ships out everywhere, find new lands, new territories, new wealth. And the Mennonites um, soon, like many other groups, sort of find themselves on some of those ships. And the Mennonites have a bit of a history of spreading themselves out into many of the uh, colonies where those explorations were done. So you think of the Mennonites, they are the leading Anabaptist group, uh, certainly probably head and shoulders above many, for 100 plus years. Until you get to uh, the 1700s. So it went back one and go upward. Until you get to the 1700s, around 1700, you have, a, you have a guy who is a Mennonite, but he thinks the Mennonites over that 170 or so years have kind of gotten soft. And so he started a bit of a revival movement, if you can use that term, with the Mennonites, within the Mennonites, to say, we've strayed. So he tried to call the Mennonite community into a more conservative mindset of doctrine and of lifestyle. And this is Jacob Amon, the group that we know of his followers, the Amish. 
the Amish took the, took the more extreme positions of the earlier Anabaptist. We live in communities. We're pacifists. We help and support each other. None of us are here to get our own wealth. We're here to serve as a community of Christians, right? Uh, think of the, uh, the Amish. And you can see a little bit of his life. Born in Switzerland, so right there in the heart of much of the Amish, I mean the uh, Mennonite teaching, growing up in that environment. Uh, but because of the persecutions of Europe that were still existing in the 1700s, he would come uh, to the area we now know as Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And there he would die. So that's where the Amish get their, get their identity from, Jacob Amman. Again, he leads them in more conservative lifestyle, more conservative in dress, separate from the world. I mean, you, you, you sort of hear all the same Amish, I mean, the same Mennonite teachings from 160 years ago that he just revived and sort of put into action. And um, uh, one of the things that the Mennonites had practiced, and the Amish really intensified this, was called the ban. For someone to be banned from the community meant probably what you'd think. They, they disobeyed. They had shown themselves to be unworthy to live in the community. And if they were banned, it was kind of the, you're, you're, you're just ignored. Nobody could do business with you. Nobody could talk to you. Nobody could trade with you. Nobody could work for you. And you couldn't work for anybody. Until what? Until you came to the church council and made your confession and, your, and begged for forgiveness, right? And then you get back into full unity. If you did not do that, then you could be excommunicated or kicked out of the community entirely. So, um, you know, the, the Amish, as we know today, and probably many of you have been up in uh, Amish country in Lancaster and beautiful area and some wonderful people, for sure. Interesting background and, and the interesting lifestyle that they live. Um, and they're not just in Pennsylvania. Uh, they are scattered much throughout the East Coast, right? There are Amish uh, families uh, in North Carolina, Virginia, um, and uh, you will find them quite the, uh, quite the influence often. And, um, uh, and, of course, they've made quite an event up in Lancaster area now with the, the tourism and things that are there and, and all that goes with that. Within the Amish group, you have the Old Order Amish and the New Order Amish. You know, it's interesting as you read through these groups, you almost find ever, every group has this division somewhere. You know, Jacob Amman separates from the Mennonites to, be, to start an Amish group. The Amish group even divide them within themselves. You've got the Old Order and the New Order. Interesting enough, the New Order Amish are more strict than the Old Order Amish. So you hear those kind of discussions. And of course, many of the Christian values of the Amish, I think, are worth admiring. Uh, they certainly are very family-centric. Now, where they lack is, is often in their preaching of the gospel of salvation. I can't paint with too broad a brush here because I'd like to think there's some gospel influence still in those communities for sure. Um, but uh, they certainly live a, an interesting and unique lifestyle. Uh, and they've certainly have found uh, uh, quite a history here in the United States. And probably some of you have had some interaction with them over the years too. Another group that comes out of the Anabaptist line are the Brethren Churches. Uh, the Brethren Churches, I'm sorry. 
Why? Why are the Amish against the automation and advancement in technology? Mainly because they, they just see it as part of the world, you know, and they try to keep it at bay. Uh, again, that's going to vary, I'm sure, within communities, within families, you know. You, have, you ever, have you ever just laid awake at night wondering to yourself, do Amish people use cell phones? You know, you just have to wonder. Um, you know, all kind of things. But obviously they travel by horse and buggy. You get in certain parts of the country up there and other places too. They'll have buggy lanes on the side of the road and a car lane. And they're expected to, you know, get along and respect each other and all those things. So it's, um, it's, it's interesting uh, for sure, you know, and, and um, uh, interesting lifestyle that they, that they live and continue from, from uh, generation to generation. Um, the, um, the Brethren churches grow out of the Anabaptist also, kind of from a different direction, though. They, they tend to be more of the German, and again, you'll see in the name here, German Baptist, but don't take that as the Baptist that we would identify with in our heritage as much as the word baptizer. These are the Germans who believed in baptism as opposed to infant baptism, confessional baptism. Uh, I like the, the um, 16th century, 17th century word dunkers um, is, is um, a term that's often used uh, with, this, with these people in this mindset of getting baptized. Um, the German baptizing brethren grow out of this. And uh, the name that sticks out there most is a, a man named Alexander Mack. You see there in the early 1700s who leads uh, this movement. Influenced by the pietist movement. Now, we're going to come, we're not, we're, I'm going to introduce the pietist movement in more detail with the Methodist. But in the early 1700s, late 1600s, early 1700s, there's a bit of a movement. Uh, revival might be too strong a word, but you get the idea. It's a bit of a, a movement across Europe for people to live a personally committed life to Christ. Um, and that meant that you did, you did Bible study, for example. You prayed at home, not just at church. You did family devotions. I mean, things, terminologies and ideas that we would be familiar with today. And well, in the late 1600s, early 1700s, that was kind of a new movement. Wow, you know, we can actually have a Bible. And, and, and again, it goes back to that, in my opinion, because most people did not have a Bible. And in, in this time, when Bibles are becoming somewhat more affordable for most people, having a Bible was a cherished possession. That's why many of us here probably could refer back to previous generations in our own family where one of the prized possessions of the family was what? The family Bible. Because it had been passed down from generation to generation at a time when buying a Bible was very expensive and very rare for families to have one. So this wasn't something just tossed out at the yard sale. It was kept and held on to with great, uh, great memories of the family. Uh, the Pietist movement was kind of that, that concept, and, it, and it, it certainly had an influence in England, and we'll talk about it next week because it sort of lays a foundation for the Methodist. But it certainly found its way into some of the teachings in Europe on the continent also, and other Christian groups as they were starting to, to be a part of spreading and moving to other countries. And the brethren took very seriously their personal relationship and you start, you start to see a word I have up here. I think it may be the first time we've had it uh, in, our, in this study, and that's the word discipleship. Again, so that's a common word to us. We understand discipling 
learning to be a follower of Christ in word and in deed and in attitude, and learning God's word and helping to disciple, teach others, helping to share the gospel with others. Uh, the brethren took that as a, a very important part of their faith, which previous generations and other denominations did not. And so they saw the importance, and you'll see in the writings also, this, this phrase of vibrant faith. Really, to live a, a dynamic Christian life, not just go to church on Sunday. They, therefore, started home meetings. Again, these groups don't have churches. They don't have buildings to go to. They don't have formal pastors necessarily, but they all, they, let's, all meet at, let's all meet at Wayne and Sherry's house. Can we all come over Thursday night? Supper will be ready about six, right? Um, and so we go to someone's house and we share learning about Christ together, right? Today we do that here, right? There's, you know, Bible study groups and, and you know, for, for many church, many of us, Sunday school was a part of that, the same concept. It's just that the brethren kind of took it to a level where they took it outside the structure of a church and did it more at home. So you got the brethren groups, all right? So we've got three of them down. We got the, um, we got the Mennonites, we got the Amish, and we got the brethren. Now, if you were to look for ch brethren churches here in this area, where would you look? Uh, I know of one congregation in Greensboro that's a brethren, historically brethren congregation, but they do not have the name brethren in the name of their church. You ride by the church, it's not on there. You sort of have to know something about the congregation to know their history and their heritage. Uh, but you will find churches with the name Brethren on the sign out front uh, up in Eden, Danville, uh, Martinsville, you know, that more moving north, northwest of us. Uh, you'll find Brethren churches there. And um, the Brethren, we would find a lot of reasons doctrinally to lock arms with the Brethren. Uh, they're, they're a denomination I'd feel very comfortable with in many ways. Uh, they certainly have an adherence to the Scripture. They want to live, pursue a pure Christian life, both as a congregation and as individuals and as families. Um, they, uh, they, uh, the Brethren churches will practice an interesting tradition, and that is the women will cover their heads when they go into church. Uh, most of them simply do that with a, a little piece of cloth. There's a name for it, and I don't, maybe some of you know. A little piece of cloth will just lay on their head. It's symbolic. Uh, but, it's, but it's one of their traditions that they'll have. There will be a lot of things in a, in a brethren church that we probably, you know, if you didn't know, might not, might not even notice. Uh, but again, if you can read their, little, their motto here, Church of the Brethren, continuing the work of Jesus peacefully, simply, together. Right? Nothing very threatening at all about any of that, for sure. And they do have a history, and they do have a heritage based upon those very early Anabaptist beliefs that we would, in many ways, uh, agree with and affirm in our own practice as Baptists. So, um, interesting there. This group in the 1720s were driven out of Germany, and many of them came to America. And um, so, you will find them in Pennsylvania, uh, Germantown, Pennsylvania. Lutherans, for sure, will be there, but some other Germans. Uh, German heritage families, um, and in coming to America, they brought their, as again as all these groups did, their brethren teachings, and uh, again escaping some of the persecution they had experienced in Europe, even as it continued into the 1700s. 
Um, so, so again, the brother groups you'll find around here. Uh, with uh, if, if you sort of know where to look and, and, and where to point to. Um, so that's three of them. Let's look at our last one here, the one I said you're probably least familiar with, and that's the Hutterites. The Hutterites, again, grew out of the Anabaptist movement, uh, but founded by an Austrian named Jacob Hutter, kind of became the leading voice for this group of Anabaptists in southern Germany, Austria area. And they moved and sort of spread east. I mean, I'm sorry, yeah, they moved east from Germany toward Poland and the Czech Republic, if you look at the map, in that direction, toward Russia, in a way. Um, he, too, is one of these leaders who was burned at the stake. Uh, you know, again, captured by the state, tried by the state, found guilty as a heretic by the state, and was executed. And uh, so the Hutterites, again, if you go look for the Hutterites, you, you, not, you might have to travel a ways. You're going to find them up in the Dakotas, and Montana, and the Great Plains, United States, and in South, uh, South and Southwest Canada, uh, in, their, in those provinces. Uh, estimates are around 500,000 Hutterites. Again, not a group you, if you find, if you run across somebody's Hutterite here, all I can tell you is they probably moved here recently, or they moved here from the Great Plains or something. But again, much like the Amish, they are very communal. They follow, follow a very simplistic lifestyle. I mean, it's, you know, it's very similar patterns of life and teaching, um, much like the Amish would be. And so, uh, again, the four main groups that sort of grow out of the Anabaptist. Now, what we're going to do is keep the Anabaptist in mind because we're not done with them yet. We're going we're to let them have a seat up here, and we're going to pull them back up in the conversation when we do get to the Baptist. Because while the Baptists do not grow out of the, Anta, the Anabaptist, they, they do have some little bit of interaction. And that little bit of interaction turns out to be quite important for the very early group of Christians that we will want to call Baptist. Now, some of the typical distinctives of all these groups, and you've probably picked up on some of them. Um, again, typical. You won't find it with every single congregation or every single family. But if you had to paint with a broad brush, you'd probably... See these things. Simple lifestyle, again, looking for a, a pure Christianity. A term that comes into this discussion often, and I haven't used it yet, is the term primitive. And in the 16 and 17, 1800s, the term primitive, in whatever language you're speaking it in, simply means the old ways. And the simple ways. So a simple lifestyle, plain clothing, as we know, is very common. Again, women covering their heads at churches, uh, simply mean, mean wearing a hat. I, I don't know for sure, but I have suspicions that that's where the wearing the hat tradition came in for women. But many of us have probably the time in our life have been to church, and women were wearing hats in the church. But men would never dare wear a hat in the church. I mean, it just seems odd, right, in, in that setting. Um, but the women would cover their heads. Again, we used it with just a small piece of cloth or even, even a scarf. Um, to cover their heads in service as a, as a sign of respect. Uh, again, a strong resistance to worldliness. So that's, you know, that's what drives and motivates so much of their lifestyle. They just have an affinity to the world and what that means. Baptism often by threefold immersion. Remember that one? You're baptized once for the Father, once for the Son, and once for the Holy Spirit. Right? Uh, it's common. Many of these congregations will practice foot washing 
There's a few Baptists who do that. And, uh, you know, we all need to wash our feet every once in a while. Um, but, you know, whether you do it at church or not, it's another story. But um, we'll talk about some Baptist groups that do that. Uh, foot washing as a sign of, they don't see foot washing as an ordinance, right? It was not something Christ commanded. They teach it as a, as a um, following the example of Christ who is willing to serve others to do the lowest medial thing you could do in that culture, wash someone's feet. And so uh, many denominations, uh, again, of this primitive mindset kind of held on to that idea. Um, they believe in a fellowship meal. And again, many congregations have some form of this. That's not the communion necessarily. It sometimes is tied to it, but it almost depends on who you're talking about. The fellowship meal where they just come together as a church family and eat, and, and Baptists have always enjoyed that opportunity too. And then the bread and the cup as, as symbols um, of following Christ, of our commitment to Christ, or our commitment to the church, and our commitment to each other. Um, so you'll see those typical patterns through the Anabaptist groups. Again, you will not find anyone in America that I'm aware of identified as an Anabaptist. They're going to be what? Mennonite, Amish, Hutterite. You know, those groups that are, that are descendants because they have their own distinctions and their own doctrines that they've set up and, their own, and really their own church practices and the way in which they structure our congregation to serve the Lord. Um, so some interesting things there for sure. So let's get a big picture look here at sort of how all this trickles down. So start at the top on this chart. We have the Reformers, right? And that's what we talked about before Christmas. Luther, Zwingli, Luther in Germany, Zwingli in, in uh, Switzerland, and then later Calvin. Zwingli's in Zurich, Switzerland. Calvin is in, is in Geneva, Switzerland. But those are all the initial voices that are starting this teaching against the Roman Catholic Church. And again, 1517 and beyond. From that, you have two particular lines. You have the Lutheran churches, begun under, of course, the leadership of Martin Luther. And you have the Swiss Reformed churches, which are Zwingli and Calvin. All of these in the 1520s. You see the time frame there. So those, so those two major branches... From those two major branches, there's also other, another branch that comes off called the Radical Reformers, you know, which we've talked about those men and those, those voices of that time frame, again, in the 1520s. And then from the Anabaptist group, you have the Mennonites, who will subdivide into the Amish, and then you'll have the Brethren Churches, um, you know, 100-plus years later. So um, you sort of see the trail of how this particular line of the Christian denominations from the Reformation uh, followed. Now, what we're going to do from here is we're going to start looking at individual denominations uh, in similar tracks. We sort of step from this path to this path. So next week, we're going to look at the Methodist and the Wesleyans who grow out of the Church of England. And we'll see that they, too, are subsets of the Church of England in the way in which they te teach and what was it that brought about the Methodist, and I'll, I'll bring back up the Pietist movement, because that was a part of what influenced the Methodist denomination to begin in England, and the Wesleyan denomination is a subset of the Methodist. So their doctrines are very similar in many ways. What's different about it is more of church practice and church policy, or what's sometimes called church polity. 
And um, so we'll look at those next week as we work our way now to naming some individual groups that don't have this really direct line uh, right from the Reformation. And we'll connect them to the Church of England as we do that next week. So anyway, boy, there's lots, of, lots happening, right? And uh, we're blessed to live in America where we find most all these groups around somewhere. Um, it's interesting to see the discussions and the conversations, the interaction of, of those things, which I think is, is interesting and maybe beneficial. The Methodists have become uh, a, a newsmaker in the last bunch of months, uh, and we'll talk about why uh, uh, next week and uh, try to get on that path a little bit. Uh, I want to mention to you a, a few things we close, and one is, uh, don't forget, uh, we're still supporting the Appel family. Thank you for your support last year for them and uh, the great work that they're doing over in the South Pacific as they are ministering to um, unreached people groups and are trying to minister the gospel in their way. And uh, they are a great family, and God's blessed all of them. And I just am always amazed at Jed and Amy raising nine kids. I mean, that in itself is a mission field. But... Um, uh, we continue to support them, so anything you give, uh, we'll have trust, uh, trust the stuff. I can't even look, to be honest with you. But you can put an envelope, just put the Appel family on it, and they'll catch it, and uh, it'll go to them. We support them every month. Uh, I'll let you know, too, haven't even let the church know this, because uh, so much has happened since Wednesday. Uh, but we have started our ministry We're up at Rockingham Community College this week. And I was up there with another pastor friend of mine for about um, two and a half hours on Thursday. And we met a lot of young people and had some great conversations. And uh, I've got a request into the college now to let us com uh, confirm a reservation for a time and a place and a room that we can meet with those college kids. Um, we had uh, college kids, my best count was 11 different churches who came and said, yeah, we'd like to be a part of an on-campus Christian group. And uh, some of them are very excited about that. And so uh, I'm looking forward to continue to build those relationships and see that program get up and going. So I appreciate your prayers for that. We're calling that rock solid um, as a college ministry. And, um, and again, looking to partner, and, and I've talked with some pastors in the area whose churches are very willing to partner with this, and we hope to have an influence on the lives of these young people up there at RCC. And um, then also uh, remind you of some of the things, uh, again, happening this coming week here at church. Wednesday night, we're, we're looking forward to having a missionary with us, Ryan Pennington. And Ryan is a, works as a Bible translator with the Baptist International Missions. Uh, we do not support him. Uh, so uh, I'm looking forward to hearing about his work and Bible translation as he's taking the scriptures to people, you know, who probably don't have a Bible their own language at this point. So he'll be here Wednesday. And then um, uh, Thursday we have day five. Come join us if you haven't for a day five fellowship on Thursday mornings. We have a great time there, uh, open at 915, and we get started about 10 o'clock with that. If you're available, we'd love to have you. And then um, next Saturday morning, uh, enlisting all the help we can to help take down the nativity stuff. It's still up around the church. And uh, so you can get all that packed away be before, uh, before too long. We'll be talking about getting it out again, right? So, uh, but to help us this coming Saturday if you can, if you're able to. Uh, and we look forward to getting all that, that project cleaned up as we start to look toward, uh, um, toward the months ahead and exciting things before us. And um, then there's also, let's see, what am I missing? Saturday morning, the um, Lost a Spouse Seminar. I'm going to look up here, Jerry, right? It's still happening. And so see, Jerry, if you have any questions on that, or there's, I think there's a sign-up list still out there. And um, so we're, we've got a few things down the road we're excited about and looking forward to as we move forward to. Good deal. As we close in prayer, too, I want to remind you, a lot, lot, of, a lot of names are cops on our Wednesday night prayer list. We'll go over that Wednesday. Uh, I want to pray for Daniel. He's going to have another eye surgery tomorrow morning, Brother Daniel. 
And uh, we trust that will go well. So that'll be, uh, um, that'll be the third time they're trying to fix something here. So we'll certainly be praying for you. So think about that in the morning. Wake up and pray for Brother Daniels. He uh, will start his day and uh, go through his day with that surgical procedure on his eye. And then uh, we're still praying, of course, for lots of needs uh, on our prayer list. Pastor mentioned Cynthia Stanley this morning. And, of course, there's some children on our prayer list right now. And uh, keep in mind, too, if you picked up one of the Weekly Connects, uh, his ministry is doing a fundraiser for the family uh, the last Saturday night of this month. And word is already out on social media, and so word is spreading. So help us and sign up for that. Uh, we're asking uh, folks here at the church, if you would, bring a dessert for that. You can contribute that way, and, um, and we'll have a great time. We trust that will be a blessing to that family uh, during a challenging time, no doubt. Any other prayer requests or updates y'all want to give us real quick? I know we all got some on our heart for sure. Well, I hope you have a great week as we get started. Let's pray and we'll close. Father, thank you for our time tonight to learn a little bit of the history of generations before us who wrestled with issues that, that, um, that uh, just impacted the movement of the gospel to generations. And I pray that you'll help us be more aware of those and more appreciative of the gospel that we cling to uh, from the Bible as Baptists. And I pray that you will allow us as we continue this study to be reminded of, uh, of the distinctions uh, for the purpose of being more convicted in the way in which we understand and exercise our faith as a church and as a congregation and as families and individuals. Um, I pray that you'll help us as we continue this study. We do pray for these requests. I pray that you'll bless our church this week and the outreach and activities that will be going on here. Uh, I pray that you'll bless the, um, uh, the uh, opportunity at the campus at the college, I pray that you'll give us, continue to give us open doors there and opportunity to minister to young people during an important time of their lives. I pray that you'll bless Brother Daniel in the morning. We pray that preparation for the surgery, the procedure itself, and the recovery will all go well, and that you'll touch and allow healing uh, as it should be and uh, the opportunity to see your hand uh, in this situation. I pray that you'll bless others on our prayer list. We think of the children. We pray for those. pray for Cynthia with surgery coming up. Also, and I pray that you'll just continue to guide and bless our church and direct us as we move forward. And uh, we know that uh, as we follow you, we will um, uh, seek to, to uh, glorify you in doing it and to bring honor to, to you as we faithfully uh, proclaim the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Have a great week.